If you brought your Bible, turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. It's always such a joy to be with you folks. And I think this is the first time I've had uh, Dana with me and her mom. So uh, you're in for a treat because I can't do the stuff I usually do and get away with. Um, Now you get to see Dan filtered. Um, So as Pastor Kurt talked about a couple of weeks ago, you started a series called Shadows and Light, and the concept of the shadow is a great one. It's how when the light especially gets angled, right, you can have this, an object that is much, much longer. It stretches much, much farther than the object really is. It's a great, it's a great picture. It looks larger. It looks overwhelming. Um, It's real. It's objective. But it's magnified to such an extent that it can take over. Um, and uh, this morning we're going to deal with a pervasive problem in our society. And what's interesting is if, if you read, if you read uh, psychology or sociology or if you even read from the, uh, from the uh, well-known and uh, renowned uh, medical journal USA Today, um, you will find all the time that this issue that we're going to talk about crosses all categories of socioeconomics and education, professional accomplishments, race, gender, and anything else that tends to classify people. It's a problem of having feelings of inadequacy. Uh, Here's what it sounds like. If I could only be like this, or, or if I could only have that, if I were only as smart as her, if I was as handsome as him, then... I could get where I want to go and I'd be happy and fulfilled. And in a competitive society like ours, a lot of people feel like losers. And in fact, many of us grew up being called a loser. Uh, In a congregation of this size, I am sure there are lots of people who've heard that word. Sometimes from people that were supposed to love you the most. Or even if it wasn't that blatant, or even if it didn't come directly from what others said, you you just never felt like you were good enough. Some of you have gone to church all your life, and the main message you've gotten from God is you're not good enough. And then you're foolish enough to come to a holiness church. And holiness rightly preached is amazing freedom. Because not my own righteousness, but Christ within It doesn't belong to me. It's all derived. I put mine down. All the other religions try to make you be good and God will be happy with you. Only in Christianity does he say, give up. You can't do it. It's not possible, but I will do it in you if you'll get out of the way. But in our circles, even your religious experience may be a pervasive sense of you are not good enough. Um, So this kind of self-understanding just casts a huge shadow over people. Uh, And so emotional insecurity can have a big impact on our lives. So this morning we're going to look at the foundations of uh, of secular psychology, of all things, and its understanding of the self. And then um, we'll see how dramatically it stands in contrast to the biblical view of where we find our value. And 
how we become emotionally and psychologically healthy. I mean, just the kind of person that they don't know what you believe, they don't even know you follow Christ necessarily, but they say, you know, I would like to be a lot like them and I wish my kids were a lot like them. Just healthy. So um, here we are, it's, you know the usual, uh, as I tell you, I have a real job, so if I work on Sundays, so are you. Get out your, get out your notes, get your pens and pencils. Um, here's your first blank. We're going to look at the, the flawed basis of the modern concept of the self, and, and we're going to unpack the two foundations in secular thought for attaining emotional health. Foundation number one, here it is, self-esteem. Now this concept has emerged as the kingpin of mental health. And the basis for the intact personality from this concept is an egocentricity, this goes all the way back to Freud, an egocentricity that builds the person up. And this philosophy emphasizes you, yourself, as the foundation for emotional wholeness and balance. The answer is somewhere deep within you. It just has to be, you just have to get all the shame and guilt and all the uh, neuroses out of the way, and if you can fix that, then you'll find the real you, uh, and there you are, healthy. Now, in contrast, I, I want us to look at a really familiar passage. Uh, if you haven't turned there, Romans chapter 12 is where we're going to uh, look at a few verses. Um, uh, but let's read one verse beyond where we almost always stop in this verse, that, uh, this, just two verses that most of you probably have memorized. Um, and the next verse will probably surprise you. So here we uh, look at verse 1, chapter 12. It's on, if you don't have your Bible, it's up, up there. Uh, I urge you, therefore, brethren, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So there's the, there's the action. If you haven't ever seen that before, um, <laughs> Uh, let me just go on. There's this, this concept of the renewing of the mind and how this is is really uh, actually quite loaded um, from Paul's perspective. But look at this. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and perfect, acceptable and perfect. Next verse. You know, in the text, in the Greek text, there's no verse numbers. There's no punctuation. In fact, there's no spaces between the letters because the parchments were that expensive. So you literally, the translators have to know where the next word starts. So this all flows perfectly in the text. Look at this. For through the grace given to me, I say to every man among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. Isn't that interesting? See, this is the practical. He stated the theology. Now he's talking about the practical outworking of the theology, the renewed mind. Not to think more highly of himself than you think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Here's the key concept. Write this in. This is the biblical understanding of where health comes from. Look, the world's way is to think highly of yourself, but with a renewed mind, with the spirits indwelling, look at this, we learn to see ourselves as God sees us. Do you realize what a relief that is if the song we just sang is true? If he's a good, good father, it doesn't matter what they think. And we're going to unpack some of the details of that. 
If he's a good, good father, what a relief to see myself as he sees me. Not fighting and competing to be higher and, 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 and better when all the rest of the crowd is fighting for the same thing. And notice from the text the specific attribute of the renewed mind that is healthy and balanced is not to think too highly of myself. Isn't that interesting? But the word goes even farther. Look at these texts. You don't have to turn there, but you know these well. Humble yourselves before, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. It's not that he wants lowly followers, unexalted, pathetic, you know, slugs. He wants to exalt us. But until we get ourselves out of the way, he has to let us get taken out. So we finally come to him. And then, of course, the incredible one from James 4.10, humble yourself in the eyes of the Lord, and he will lift you up. It's a promise. He'll lift you up. Secular thought teaches us to lift ourselves up. So is there any wonder that decades of science of studying the technique of psychotherapy have reliably shown that it doesn't work? A century worth of science has looked at what started with Freud, and it doesn't work. Now, I need to do some clarifying here. This is important. Uh, this is the, around here I know the proverbial, uh, I, I think Pastor Kurt and I both heard it from, the, from, the, from Reggie McNeil, don't hear what I'm not saying, right? Let me start by saying that uh, wanting to have positive thoughts about who you are is in fact a good thing. Denigrating yourself is destructive and harmful. See, this hum- humility isn't saying, oh, I'm bad, I'm bad, I'm bad. No, humility is saying, Lord, who am I in you? It's, it's a great relief. Okay, I'm also not talking about physiological neurohormonal abnormalities. These are real diseases with real chemical causes. Uh, so there have uh, been some great strides that have been made in psychopharmacology, right? Uh, s- some people who have schizophrenia get remarkable relief when you correct their neurohormonal imbalances. Depression. Uh, there's many places. In fact, I think Pastor Kurt unpacked that a couple of weeks ago about don't, don't be foolish to say, hey, if you just have enough faith, you'll feel better. Some of you actually have a serotonin. He probably didn't teach about serotonin, but a serotonin <laughs> deficiency in your central nervous system. And so it, it, I guess if you say don't do that, then also tell the diabetics don't take insulin because you don't have enough faith. Your sugar will fix itself. No, God, we don't, I don't know if you, where you grew up, but we, don't, we believe all truth belongs to God. All healing comes from God. So don't be foolish and not use what God has allowed to be discovered. So that's not what we're talking about. Uh, I'm also not lumping every kind of counseling um, uh, in, okay? I'm not, I'm not uh, uh, lumping this uh, together. In fact, biblical counsel, wise biblical counsel, every one of us needs. I know Pastor Curtis, he's starting to teach on blind spots. A big, huge portion of that is we all need someone. If, for instance, if you only read the Bible, you don't read the Bible. That's a great historical theological concept. You know why? Because if nobody can, can look at your assumptions the way you read it and what you've whited out unintentionally and can say, well, what's, what about this verse over here that sounds like it's exactly the opposite of what you said? The reality is all of us need counsel. So I'm not talking about that. Okay, but... Let me just point out that this, this worldly understanding is in sharp contrast to the word that teaches that the road to emotional health and balance and wholeness is in identifying 
and confessing our inadequacy. So here's the bad news. You will all, if you pretend you're not inadequate for your life, you'll always feel inadequate. Because the bottom line is, in the biblical worldview, since humanity f- fell, and even in Adam and Eve were totally dependent upon someone else. So the, 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 news, the good news is, stop worrying about it. You're inadequate. Don't pretend anything other than that. And you take your frailty and your weakness and your lowliness, and then you know what you do? You submit all of that about yourself to the good, good Father who is gracious and who has made you for greatness. That's the basis of the self-understanding. But until we get over ourselves, we can't be what he's created us to be. So, you see, the world teaches us the way to fulfillment is found in exalting ourselves. The Word teaches us the way to fulfillment is in forgetting ourselves. And I, one of the most amazing, clear statements of this in Christian history that I have ever read came from C.S. Lewis. It's a biblical axiom. It should be up here. It's in your notes. Look at this. God isn't trying to think, get us to think less of ourselves. He's trying to get us to think of ourselves less. Just free from always comparing. Just free because of who we are in him. Okay, so foundation number one. Now foundation number two of the modern understanding of how you uh, make yourself healthy. First, self-esteem. Second, (laughs) self-love. I just, by the time we get to the end of this, but let me just give the summary. Yeah, the world would be a lot better if people were more self-absorbed, wouldn't it? I mean, that's really what we need. We need more self-centeredness, more focus on me. That'll clear up a lot of wars, won't it? Um, So, see, if you look on the shelves of secular bookstores, you'll find this title after title, and it promotes self-love as the basis for fulfillment and happiness. It's the basis, self-love. This shouldn't surprise us, but what should surprise us is this concept also fills the Christian bookstores. One of the key scriptures that's usually misinterpreted to teach this line is in Matthew chapter 22. Look there with me. Turn a couple of books, three or four books to the left, to Matthew, the first gospel, chapter 22. Those who looked at your notes, you're thinking, this is great. I know where all these books are in the Bible um, this morning. Um, Matthew 22, that's right, we're not going to Hosea. Um, Matthew 22, look at verse 37. And he said to him, you'll know this well, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great command and foremost commandment. The second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now let me give you the typical exegesis, that means the unpacking of the text by, by, uh, theologically, right? Here's the typical exegetical conclusion it's your, in your blanks, look at this. You can't love others unless you learn to love yourself first. Okay, so you can go home and throw away about half the books. that, that It says that in the preface of half of the Christian books nowadays. But you see, this isn't what the text says. Look at what the passage actually says, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. Have you ever noticed this? Here's the accurate exegesis. Here's your blanks. Self-love is assumed. Self-love is a given. Self-love is automatic. He didn't have to tell anybody how to love themselves. He just said, 
you already love yourself. I'll tell you how to love your neighbor. Love them like you already love yourself. So, the love of oneself isn't in question. What's in question is whether we'll love others like we really love me already. See, the command is to do what doesn't come naturally and automatically. The hard part isn't loving ourselves, it's loving our neighbor. In reality, our self-love doesn't promote loving others, it actually gets in the way. So, look at this. The two foundations of modern psychology. If self-esteem and self-actualization and self-love aren't the basis for being a balanced person and healthy individual, what is it? Well, here is the biblical foundation. This is classic. This is not, we're not making anything up. This is not new. You should know this if you've read the classical theologians on the, on the human person. Look at this. The biblical foundation for balance and wholeness. Here's your blanks. True mental and emotional health comes from finding my value, my esteem, and my identity. All three of those. My value, my esteem, and my identity solely in Christ. That's where wholeness comes from. And so this leads to, we'll move quickly to, to application, because that's the, the, the devil's in the details, if you will, on this morning. Look, look at the application. Sorry it's so long, but uh, fortunately you have almost all of it except a few blanks. Notice this. I'll never be free from comparing myself to others, a problem that almost all of us have, and truly secure. I'll never be free from comparing myself to others and truly secure and confident with who I am until my identity rests completely in God's unconditional and unlimited love. Until I understand him at his essence, God who is love, not just loving, but who is love at his, it is the essence of reality in God. Until I understand that my identity, apart from anything other than his unlimited and unconditional love for me, will always be a shaky identity. So as we begin the application, I want us to look at the classical theology that underpins this concept of being infinitely valuable, a human being infinitely valuable. Here it is, the foundation. And again, this is all classical theology. Here's your blanks. The foundation of human value is the imago dei, right, in Latin. Every human was made in the image of God, of infinite worth. And the proof of human value, that's the foundation, the proof of human value is that Christ paid an infinite price for every human being. Okay, so we see the foundation for this concept. Look with me at a couple of verses, uh, excuse me, chapters to the right. Matthew 26. Matthew 26, and this has, this really has uh, two, two problems, at least two problems with it, this passage. Uh, the, the first is, we can't understand the depths of what it meant. And the second is we have heard it so many times that we just, it has the problem of familiarity. But listen to what Jesus says. Here we are in Gethsemane. Verse 36. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed. I think it's the Luke rendering, uh, Luke rendering I think, that says it right, sweats as blood. I mean, just amazing what's going on. And notice, 
My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Now, undoubtedly, we've heard this hundreds of times. But one aspect doesn't get talked much about. What was the purpose? And you could easily default to, ultimately, we know that everything that Jesus did was to glorify the Father. So the ultimate answer is an easy one. Why did he do it? To glorify the Father. But what's interesting is, think about this, he had already been perfectly glorifying the Father throughout eternity in heaven. Clearly, he didn't have to go to Gethsemane or to the cross to perfectly glorify the Father. So, so what is it that Jesus couldn't have unless he drank the cup? If this, actually, I wish I could teach this the way it needs to be taught. If this could sink in, it would clear up so many problems for followers of Christ. The one thing that he couldn't have without Gethsemane and the cross was us. It's the only thing he couldn't have. Think of this. Let this sink in. The one thing that kept, was kept from him in heaven was us. Without the cup, he couldn't have us. The ones whom he created were doomed to be banished from his presence forever, and he loves us so much that he couldn't conceive of being separated from us. So he descended into Hades and separated himself from the Father to be with you and me. You talk about a downgrade. Think of it. Separated from the Father to be with us. So he is amazing. So, so why did Jesus take the agony and the separation for himself? He did it for me. He did it for me. Say it. For me. Say it again. For me. He did this for you and for me. Now, how valuable it is that I am to the Father in eternity and to Jesus in the end. This is how much dignity I have. The Scripture calls me the desired of God. I'm the one He yearns to be with. You and I are so valuable to God that He is willing to pay an incalculable price to be with us. So here's a question that every human being deals with. Whether you ask it this way or not, every human being does ask the question, what is my value? What gives me my significance? So here's two key concepts from the, from the, the Scripture. Key concept number one, write, write it in. My significance has nothing to do with my performance. Listen to some of you who grew up in homes where love was doled out when you were good. Listen. My significance has nothing to do with my performance, but comes only from what Christ has done for me. He did it for me. It doesn't matter what anybody ever else says, says to you. Your performance is not why Jesus went to the cross. Who you are is why Jesus went to the cross. Key concept number two. My value has nothing to do with what others think of me. Listen, college students. Driven by every aspect of social media and everything, and I'm, I'm, blame, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm saying it to you college students, but let me tell you, there's a whole bunch of 70-year-olds who never were as good-looking as they wanted to be and are still trying to get in shape and all this kind of stuff. But, but, but listen to this. My value has nothing to do with what others think of me, but it is derived solely from the fact that I'm treasured by God. 
Oh my, I don't know which psychology you like. A hopeless one where I'm fighting all of my life to find the answer down deep inside and I know it's not there. Or this, I'm treasured. So, here's how you know of your significance. Here's how you're supposed to see yourself. Here's how you can be secure with who you are. You've found your identity in Jesus Christ alone. And now we're ready to really apply these foundational biblical concepts. Issue number one. Issue number one. You guys, I know you're surprised. We're, all, we're, we're flying through this. There's only 26 slides this morning. Can you believe it? Um, Josiah was convinced that I gave him the wrong file. Um, issue number one. If you find your value in anything other than Christ, you will inevitably experience a self-quake. I, I didn't make up that term. I'll tell you about the psychologist who did. If you find your value in anything other than Christ, you will inevitably experience a self-quake. This comes from a clinical psychologist who's a student counselor at one of the Ivy League schools. I think it's Columbia University. So everybody knows the Ivies, you know, some of the top schools in the world. Um, And here's what he found. He says there's an incredible amount of depression that he deals with among the students at the Ivies. These top-of-the-world, you know, top-flight people. Um, And here's the problem. The students, they get into the Ivies, and they were the smartest kids in their high school. In fact, they were the smartest kids in town. And um, so many of them began to say, well, you know, I'm not that good looking, and I'm not athletic, but I'm the smartest one in town. And so they start building, crafting this image around being the best, the smartest. Who cares about those irrelevant athletics? Those are stupid anyway, because I'm smart, right? They build this. And so, so sorry if you went to the Ivies. Um, so so uh, they, this is an amazing thing that he watched. Notice, he says, they craft their self-image based upon being smarter than everyone. But when they got to a world-class university, some of them get Bs and some of them even get Cs. And now these brilliant students, uh, these are quotes, Now these brilliant students who've always been at the top of their class come to a place where they're average. And to them, average means failure. So you may be at Harvard and you're a failure. And when that happens, they experience what the counselor termed a self-quake. Their very identity is shattered. So here's the problem. If your value comes from comparing yourself to others or with some kind of performance standard, you'll ultimately run into the brutal reality that there's always someone smarter or better looking or more talented or more athletic or wealthier than you are. And so when your identity is found in beauty or in brilliance or wealth or position or power or success, you will always be chasing the unattainable because someone's always better. I think of that, I might have mentioned this before, I think of the, uh, the and I'll mention several of his, uh, uh, some of his stuff uh, later, Timothy Keller, the uh, amazing theologian and pastor of um, Redeemer Presbyterian in, in Manhattan Island, and he talks about, I think he grew up in Iowa, he talks about his friend who won the state, uh, he was the best guitarist in Iowa, he won that thing. Did I tell you guys this story before? Uh, this is amazing. And he said, he, so he came to New York, which is where Keller was. 
And he comes to Keller's home because he was, hadn't gotten into his apartment yet, and the guy's now, you know, 45 years old or 40 years old or something, and he's come to New York to make his way because he's the best guitarist in Iowa. And he gets to Keller's uh, apartment, and, and, Keller sa- and he says, hey, how, how are you doing? He says, I have to go home. He said, why? He said, because I got off the, I got off the metro, and I was walking through, and a guy with money in his hat is a better guitarist than I am. He came to New York where all the... There's always somebody better. So it's a, it's a hopeless way to build. Issue number two, finding our value. Here's your blank. Finding our value in Christ gives us the, light, the right perspective on our possession, our position, excuse me, our profession, our position, and our possessions. So let me give an example of this. When our identity is found in Christ alone, we're free to choose our profession based upon what we love doing rather than how much money we're going to make or how much prestige it gives a person. You see, um, in fact, this is amazing to me. Uh, this was perfect. As I listened last night uh, to the radio, there was a commercial that came on and it talked about the person who just loves their car. The, the one distinct thing I remember saying is, you know, you're the person who knows you're not just getting metallic red, you're getting pearl metallic red, and you know the difference. I, I don't, but I mean, my $50 fiat that we made it through medical school with, that tells you what I think about cars. Um, but in any case, and, and this commercial said, talk about working you for hopelessness. The commercial said, but you know this isn't just a car. It's actually a 3,000-pound a 3,000-pound extension of who you are. There you are, America. See, what we drive or where we go no longer defines us if we're in Christ alone. See, it's not based upon what we're doing or how much money we're going to make, how, our possessions. And, and see, what happens is when you're fully found in Christ, cars and houses and stuff, they just become things. They just become blessings that... They can come and go. They, they just become things. That's all. They're used for a completely different purpose. And see, now, now if we don't get a promotion, it doesn't devastate us because our position doesn't define who we are. Success isn't the source of our value. So we're free to hold loosely to the things of this world because they don't give us our significance and they don't define who we are. By the way, sorry for the people who have the pearl-colored cars and the thing. Actually, there'll be a little special altar over here for the car, pro, car idolatry people uh, at the end of the service. Um, so so it, listen to what Timothy Keller, uh, he re- recently commented on many men who have come to him. Again, a pastor of a huge church, incredible theologian. And he, he said, it's amazing how devastated that they were, that they, they lost a lot of money or many of them lost their business and went bankrupt. And he was struck by the reason they were so distraught is because their identity was tied up in their business and their professional success. It wasn't just a business. It wasn't just a a corporation. It was who they were. Um, And when things went poorly, it shook them to their core. And they said, these are quotes from Keller. They said things like, I don't even know who I am anymore. So when they lost their assets, it wasn't really about the money. It was actually they had lost who they were, and what made them significant was gone. Issue number three. By the way, let me just say, 
If you happen to be in a setting where God's taken something incredibly precious away from you, or that's your perspective, he's at least allowed it to happen because he's completely sovereign. Do you know the good, good father often loves us by exposing the very things that have become idols? And you're sitting there thinking, oh, if God was good, I'd have this. If God were good, I'd get that. If God were good, he would have kept that from happening. And the good, good fathers may well be saying, oh, I hurt with you. I went to the cross. I already bore all of your suffering that you're feeling. But the reality is you need to find out that that's what your hope was in. A good, good father lets a child fall and then loves them to understand their need. All right, issue number three. This is important because of what you're doing as a church right now. Don't get uncommon backwards. I suspect in the, we're listening to Pastor Kurt's teaching. We've cheated and snuck in. Um, and Because um, I, I know Josiah. By the way, if you're good friends of Josiah, you can find out anything about the church. Um, so, um, so, so this is important. Notice, um, this teaching may be confusing or even sound contradictory to some of you. See, in uncommon, you're hearing that God has called you to greatness, to excellence. He's called you to be uncommon. But don't think that you're hearing that what you do isn't that important. Okay? This is important. Let me say it, say it right. Now you think you're hearing that what you do isn't that important because your value doesn't come from your performance. So let me clear up the potential confusion. The reason to be uncommon, the reason to be great, has nothing to do with giving yourself value or significance by what you do. That's not the reason. So, so um, it is absolutely the other way around. Don't get uncommon backwards. Right? When we fully find our significance in Christ and His love, when we've been filled with His Holy Spirit, then we're finally free to live to God's exceptional calling for us. So what we do matters. It matters a lot. But what we do for God flows out of a response to His amazing love And it's a free expression of living fully into his purpose. Don't get uncommon backwards. Let me tell you, it's just like holiness teaching. Whatever great purpose you set yourself toward, if you try in your own strength to bring about that great purpose, you will always fail. You're going to fail. You can't do it. God's purpose for you is way too great for him to even let you pull it off without him. So make sure you don't get it backward. It will crush you if you try to be uncommon without first just going to the cross and saying, oh, Jesus, make me what I can't be. Then he empowers us through his spirit to be uncommon. Issue number four, if you're a single, don't place your hope and your security, your future or your significance in having a relationship or getting married. See, if you're single or divorced, I want you to listen really carefully. Your significance doesn't come from having a relationship or getting married. These are good things, but they're good things only if they're seen from the right perspective. Your value doesn't come from whether someone wants to go out with you or not. You're you're loved in him. You're a child of the king, and this is the sole basis for who you are. So relentlessly, this is important, relentlessly guard against finding your hope in a relationship or a future relationship. Otherwise, you will desperately pursue this because that's where you find your self-worth. 
And this will drive you to make foolish, destructive decisions. Wanting to get married is natural, and marriage can be a great thing. But you know what? If it becomes your hope, and if getting that ring is how you're going to define your value, and if you don't believe that you can be a whole person without having a spouse, then marriage has become an idol. And it's hard to overstate how bad things can get if you blow this idol. Don't make the wrong choice by finding your hope there. Um, Now, if you live fully into Christ, then you'll have the confidence and the patience to wisely and carefully evaluate those whom you're considering marrying. So let, let let me read this. I love this as an anchor, and it should be up here on the screen now. Look at this. Let this soak in. In Christ, you're absolutely and completely accepted, adored, loved, treasured, and delighted in by the only person in the whole universe whose opinion really matters and whose opinion will last. Let me read that again. In Christ, you're absolutely and completely accepted, adored, loved, treasured, and delighted in by the only person in the whole universe whose opinion really matters and whose opinion will last. Number five, if I find my value in anything other than God's love for me, then the thing that gives me my sense of worth will control me. Listen. The thing that gives me my sense of worth will control me and steal my freedom. You see, here's what the, the way the world values people. Let me give you some quotes. The reason I know I'm an okay person is because I'm doing well in my job or school or as a parent or in how I look or because I'm smart, or because someone thinks I'm beautiful, or because someone asked me to marry them, or because my children are successful, or because I've gotten into a top-flight school. Do you realize how restrictive that is, if that's why you're okay? If that's why you're who you are? Think about this. Maybe you work really hard at looking good, but then you're in a place where someone walks into the room, and without trying at all, They are so naturally gorgeous, you feel ugly. You realize, you know what? There's always someone more beautiful than you. There's always someone more handsome than you. You you see, um, now watch what happens. This is really a key to pick up on, right? You see, you may then no longer really want to be around them. And this means there will be places that you can't go. And people that you have to avoid because that person is going to be there. Look how restrictive. Do you realize what's controlling your life? And who knows, that person may be an amazing person that God put in your pathway. But you can't have a, be a friend with them because you're so insecure because somebody's more beautiful than you. See how fragile all of what the world offers is when it's who we are? So... You can also, by the way, be controlled by the flip side. Maybe you only want to be seen with the successful people or the cool people at school. Maybe you only want to be with the students that are in or, or, or at your job with the rich people or popular people, right? People who give you the image that you want to project. See what's happening? Your identity isn't intact. It's fragile. But look at how freeing it is when you base your identity in Christ. There's no place that you're afraid of 
Nobody you're afraid to be around anymore. You can learn from the person who's smarter than you and become smarter instead of capping yourself because you can't be around people who are smarter than you. Guess what? If you're the smartest person you're always around, you're going to get dumber over time because you're going to forget things. Has that ever occurred to you? You need to be able to surround yourself with people who are smarter and better than you are because you will learn from them, but only if I truly understand that the only opinion that matters is the one who died for me. Will I be free to be there? So, you no longer have to compare yourself to others. You don't feel inadequate about talented, smart, beautiful, or successful people because your worth is rooted in an unshakable foundation that no situation and no person can steal from you because you are adored by the king. Josiah, bring the team up to help us. So as we close, I know that some of us here have been told all our lives that we're not good enough. And again, sometimes that may have been from the people who were supposed to love us best, but who knows? It might have been friends at school, and you're still living with that lost self in your 80s. The reality is these things hang around a really long time. Uh, And even if uh, we haven't been told this, many of us still believe it. I'm just not good enough, or I'm not this enough. Some of us are living right now with false beliefs about ourselves that come from a world that constantly tells you that you don't cut it. You're not the real deal. And some of us have allowed this lie to actually drive our lives. But this morning, listen to what Jesus is saying. From Gethsemane, this is what he was saying. I gave my all for you because you're amazing. You're incredible. You're my delight. You're my treasure. In fact, I made you so you're actually my masterpiece. Before you breathed your first breath, I adored you. Isn't he good? In fact, before you did anything, I already cherished you. And nothing about you can change my love. Nothing you've done, nothing you've failed to do, nothing you've become, I don't love you for your performance. I love you simply because I gave you infinite value. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ... Let me tell you, whether you realize it or not, you're basing your value on the wrong foundation. And because of this, if it hasn't happened already, ultimately, your self-made significance will crumble. In fact, he loves you so much, he may make it crumble so you realize where you need to find your significance. I urge you to come to him right now so that you can experience the incredible freedom of knowing that no matter who you are or what you've done, you're of infinite worth to the only one whose opinion matters. And then for the believers here, I suspect there are a whole bunch of us here who need to let this message soak in, to let the Father's love pour over us, to lay down what others think about us 
and give him our weaknesses, our insecurities, our failures. You see, it's time to really receive the unconditional, unfailing, infinite love of your Savior. Some people here have walked with God for 40 or 50 or 60 years and you still feel like you haven't done enough. He's a good, good father. And he loves you no matter what. Remember, your value doesn't come from your skills, your talent, your looks, your position, your possession, your degree, your work, your grades, your money, what you've accomplished. And it doesn't even come from what you've done for God. That's not where your value comes from. So I've intentionally left some time for us to spend a few minutes to allow the Holy Spirit to apply this message to our hearts and minds. So this morning, stand with me. I'm actually cheating because now I'm going to ask you to kneel. But um, whether you're someone who needs to come to Christ to experience an amazing grace for the first time or a believer who has areas that you just need him to cover with your love, his love. As we close, I'd like you to do one of two things. Either kneel at your seat if you're physically able or come to the altar if that's uh, what you prefer, prefer. And as we kneel, let's ask the Holy Spirit to help us lay down our inadequacies and our insecurities. And let's bask in the presence of the one who loves us with an infinite love. So as the worship band sings, let's kneel together, either at your seat or at the altar. And let's just receive this incredible gift of God's unfailing love as they sing.